Chapter Two, Part One of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Two, The Winged Assassin, Part One. My scientific pursuits no longer interested me. I returned to my house in Regent's Park, but only to ponder recent events. With the sanction of conscience I fully intended to be a traitor to the infamous brotherhood which, in a moment of mad folly, I had joined. From henceforth my object would be to expose Madame Colucci. By doing so my own life would be in danger. Nevertheless, my firm determination was not to leave a stone unturned to place this woman and her confederates in the felon's dock of an English criminal court. To effect this end one thing was obvious. Single-handed I could not work. I knew little of the law, and to expose a secret society like Madame Colucci's, I must invoke the aid of the keenest and most able legal advisers. Colin Dufrayer, the man I had just met before my hurried visit to Naples, was assuredly the person of all others for my purpose. He was one of the smartest lawyers in London. I went, therefore, one day to his office. I was fortunate in finding him in, and he listened to the story which I told him in confidence with the keenest attention. "'If this is true, Head,' he said, "'you yourself are in considerable danger.' "'Yes,' I answered. "'Nevertheless, my mind is made up. "'I will enter the lists against Madame Colucci.' His face grew grave. Furrows lined his high and bald forehead, and knitted themselves together over his watchful grey eyes. "'If any one but yourself had brought me such an incredible story, Head, I should have thought him mad,' he said at last. "'Of course, one knows that from time to time a great master in crime arises, and sets justice at defiance. But that this woman should be the leader of a deliberately organized crusade against the laws of England is almost past my belief. Granted it is so, however, what do you wish me to do?' "'Give me your help,' I answered. "'Use your ingenuity. "'Employ your keenest agents, "'the most trusted and experienced officers of the law, "'to watch this woman day and night, "'and bring her and her accomplices to justice. "'I am a rich man, "'and I am prepared to devote both my life and my money "'to this great cause. "'When we have obtained a sufficient evidence,' I continued, "'let us lay our information before the authorities.' "'He looked at me thoughtfully. "'After a moment he spoke.' "'What occurred in Naples has doubtless given the Brotherhood a considerable shock,' he said. "'And if Madame Colucci is as clever as you suppose her to be, she will remain quiet for the present. Your best plan, therefore, is to do nothing, and allow me to watch. She suspects you. She does not suspect me.' "'That is certainly the case,' I answered. "'Take a sea voyage, or do something to restore your equilibrium head. You look overexcited.' So would you be if you knew the woman, and if you had just gone through my terrible experiences. Granted. But do not let this get on your nerves. Rest assured that I won't leave a stone unturned to convict the woman, and that when the right moment comes I will apply to you. I had to be satisfied with this reply, and soon afterwards I left Defrayer. I spent a winter of anxiety, during which time I heard nothing of Madame Colucci. Once again my suspicions were slumbering, and my attention was turned to that science which was at once the delight and solace of my life, when, in the May of the following year, I received a note from Dufrayer. It ran as follows. My dear head, 
I have received an invitation both for you and myself to dine and sleep next Friday at Sir John Winton's place at Epsom. You are, of course, aware that his horse, Ajax, is the favourite for the Derby. Don't on any account refuse this invitation. Throw over all engagements for the sake of it. There is more in this than meets the eye. Yours sincerely. Colin Dufrayer. I wired back to Dufrayer to accept the invitation, and on the following Friday went down to Epsom in time for dinner. Dufrayer had arrived earlier in the day, and I had not yet had an opportunity of seeing him alone. When I entered the drawing-room before dinner, I found myself one of a large party. My host came forward to receive me. I happened to have met Sir John several times at his club in town, and he now signified his pleasure at seeing me in his house. A moment afterwards he introduced me to a bright-eyed girl of about nineteen years of age. Her name was Alison Carr. She had very dark eyes and hair, a transparent complexion, and a manner full of vivacity and intelligence. I noticed, however, an anxious expression about her lips, and also that now and then, when engaged in the most animated conversation, she lost herself in a reverie of a somewhat painful nature. She would wake from these fits of inattention with an obvious start and a heightened color. I found she was to be my companion at dinner, and soon discovered that hers was an interesting, indeed delightful, personality. She knew the world and could talk well. Our conversation presently drifted to the great subject of the hour, Sir John Winton's colt Ajax. "'He is a beauty!' cried the girl. "'I love him for himself, as who would not who had ever seen him? But if he wins the derby, why, then my gratitude—' She paused and clasped her hands, then drew herself up, colouring. "'Are you very much interested in the result of the race?' I could not help asking. "'All my future turns on it,' she said, dropping her voice to a low whisper. "'I think,' she continued, "'Mr. Dufrayer intends to confide in you. I know something about you, Mr. Head, for Mr. Dufrayer has told me. I am so glad to meet you. I cannot say any more now, but my position is one of great anxiety.' Her words somewhat surprised me, but I could not question her further at that moment. Later on, however, when we returned to the drawing-room, I approached her side. She looked up eagerly when she saw me. "'I have been all over Europe this summer,' she said gaily. "'Don't you want to see some of my photographs?' She motioned me to a seat near her side, and, taking up a book, opened it. We bent over the photographs. She turned the pages, talking eagerly. Suddenly she put her hand to her brow, and her face turned deadly pale. "'What is the matter?' I asked. She did not speak for a moment, but I noticed that the moisture stood on her forehead. Presently she gave a sigh of relief. "'It has passed,' she said. "'Yes, I suffer in my head an indescribable agony, but it does not last now more than a moment or two. At one time the pain used to stay for nearly an hour, and I was almost crazy at the end. I have had these sharp sort of neuralgic pains from a child, but since I have consulted Madame Colucci—' I started. She looked up at me and nodded. "'Of course you have heard of her,' she said. "'Who has not?' She is quite the most wonderful, delightful woman in existence. She indeed is a doctor to have confidence in. I understand that the men of the profession are mad with jealousy, and small wonder her cures are so marvellous. Yes, Mr. Head, I went to quite half a dozen of our greatest doctors, and they could do nothing for me. But since I have been to Madame Colucci the pain comes but seldom, and when it does arise from any cause it quickly subsides. I have much to thank her for. Have you ever seen her?' "'Yes,' I replied. "'And don't you like her?' 
continued the girl eagerly, "'is she not beautiful, the most beautiful woman in the world? Perhaps you have consulted her for your health. She has a great many men patients.' I made no reply. Miss Carr continued to speak with great animation. "'It is not only her beauty which impresses me,' she said. "'It is also her power. She draws you out of yourself completely. When I am away from her I must confess I am restless. It is as though she hypnotized me, and yet she has never done so. I long to go back to her, even when—' She hesitated and trembled. Someone came up, and commonplace subjects of conversation resumed their sway. That evening late I joined Dufrayer in the smoking-room. We found ourselves alone, and I began to speak at once. "'You asked me to come here for a purpose,' I said. "'Miss Carr, the girl whom I took in to dinner, further told me that you had something to communicate. What is the matter?' "'Sit down, Head. I have much to tell you.' "'By the way,' I continued, as I sank into the nearest chair, "'do you know that Miss Carr is under the influence of Madame Colucci?' "'I know it.' and before I can go any further, tell me what you think of her. She is a handsome girl, I replied, and I should say a good one, but she seems to have trouble, she hinted at such, and in any case I observed it in her face and manner. You are right. She is suffering from a very considerable anxiety. I will explain all that to you presently. Now, please give your best attention to the following details. It is about a month ago that I first received a visit from Frank Calthorpe, Sir John Winton's nephew, and the junior partner of Bruce, Nicholson, and Calthorpe, the great stock-jobbers in Garrick Gardens. I did some legal business for his firm some years ago, but the matter on which Calthorpe came to see me was not one connected with his business, but of a purely private character. Am I to hear what it is? You are, and the first piece of information I mean to impart to you is the following. Frank Calthorpe is engaged to Miss Carr. Indeed, the engagement is of three months' date. When are they to be married? That altogether depends on whether Sir John Winton's favourite, Ajax, wins the derby or not. What do you mean? To explain, I must tell you something of Miss Carr's early history. I sat back in my chair, and prepared to listen. Dufrayer spoke slowly. About a year ago, he began, Alison Carr lost her father. She was then eighteen years of age and still at school. Her mother died when she was five years old. The father was a West Indian merchant, and had made his money slowly and with care. When he died, he left a hundred thousand pounds behind him, and an extraordinary will. The girl whom you met to-night was his only child. Henry Carr, Alison's father, had a brother, Felix Carr, a clergyman. In his will, Henry made his brother Alison's sole guardian, and also his own residuary legatee. The interest of the hundred thousand pounds was to be devoted altogether to the girl's benefit, but the capital was only to come into her possession on certain conditions. She was to live with her uncle, and receive the interest of the money as long as she remained single. After the death of the uncle she was still, provided she was unmarried, to receive the interest during her lifetime. At her death the property was to go to Felix Carr's eldest son, or, in case he was dead, to his children. Provided, however, Alison married, according to the conditions of the will, the whole of the hundred thousand pounds was to be settled on her and her children. The conditions were as follows. The man who married Alison was to settle a similar sum of one hundred thousand upon her and her children, and he was also to add the name of Carr to his own. Failing the fulfillment of these two conditions, Alison, if she married, was to lose the interest and capital of her father's fortune the whole going to Felix Carr for his life, and after him to his eldest son. 
On this point the girl's father seems to have had a crank. He was often heard to say that he did not intend to amass gold in order to provide luxuries for a stranger. "'Let the man who marries Allison put pound to pound,' he would cry. "'That's fair enough. Otherwise the money goes to my brother.' Since her father's death Allison has had one or two proposals from elderly men of great wealth, but she naturally would not consider them. When she became engaged, however, to Calthorpe, he had every hope that he would be able to fulfill the strange conditions of the will and meet her fortune with an equal sum on his own account. The engagement is now of three months' date, and here comes the extraordinary part of the story. Calthorpe, like most of his kind, is a speculator, and has large dealings both in stocks and shares and on the turf. He is a keen sportsman. Now, pray listen. Hitherto he has always been remarkable for his luck, which has been, of course, as much due to his own common sense as anything else. But since his engagement to Miss Carr, his financial ventures have been so persistently disastrous, and his losses so heavy, that he is practically now on the verge of ruin. Several most remarkable and unaccountable things have happened recently, and it is now almost certain that someone with great resources has been using his influence against him. You will naturally say that the person whose object it would be to do so is Allison's uncle, but beyond the vaguest suspicion there is not the slightest evidence against him. He has been interested in the engagement from the first, and preparations have even been made for the wedding. It is true that Allison does not like him, and resents very much the clause in the will which compels her to live with him, but as far as we can tell he has always been systematically kind to her, and takes the deepest interest in Calthorpe's affairs. Day by day, however, these affairs grow worse and worse. About a fortnight ago, Calthorpe actually discovered that shares were being held against him on which he was paying enormous differences, and had finally to buy them back at tremendous loss. The business was done through a broker, but the identity of his client is a mystery. We now come to his present position, which is a most crucial one. Next Wednesday is the Derby Day, and Calthorpe hopes to retrieve his losses by a big coup, as he has backed Ajax at an average price of five to two, in order to win one hundred thousand on the horse alone. He has been quietly getting his money on during the last two months through a lot of different commission agents. If he secures this big haul, he will be in a position to marry Allison, and his difficulties will be at an end. If, on the other hand, the horse is beaten, Calthorpe is ruined. "'What are the chances for the horse?' I asked. "'As far as I can tell, they are splendid. He is a magnificent creature, a bay colt with black points, and comes of splendid stock. His grandsire was Colonel Gillingham's trumpeter, who was the champion of his year, winning the Derby, the Two Thousand Guineas, and St. Leisure. There is not a three-year-old with such a fashionable ancestry as Ajax, and Sir John Winton is confident that he will follow their glorious record. "'Have you any reason to suspect Madame Colucci in this matter?' I asked. "'None. Without doubt, Calthorpe possesses an enemy, but who that enemy is remains to be discovered. His natural enemy would be Felix Carr, but to all appearance the man has not moved a finger against him.' Felix is well off, too, on his own account, and it is scarcely fair to suspect him of the wish to deliberately ruin his niece's prospects and her happiness. On the other hand, such a series of disasters would not happen to Calthorpe without a cause, and we have got to face that fact. Madame Colucci would, of course, be capable of doing the business, but we cannot find that Felix Carr even knows her. "'His niece does,' I cried. "'She consults her. She is under her care.' "'I know that.' and have followed up the clue very carefully, said Dufrayer. Of course, 
The fact that Allison visits her two or three times a week, and in all probability confides in her fully, makes it all important to watch her carefully. That fact, with the history which you have unfolded of Madame Colucci, makes it essential that we should take her into our calculations, but up to the present there is not a breath of suspicion against her. All turns on the derby. If Ajax wins, whoever the person is who is Calthorpe's secret enemy will have his foul purpose defeated. Early the following morning, Sir John Winton took Dufrayer and myself to the training stables. Miss Carr accompanied us. The colt was brought out for inspection, and I had seldom seen a more magnificent animal. He was, as Dufrayer had described him, a bright bay with black points. His broad forehead, brilliant eyes, black muzzle, and expanded nostrils proclaimed the Arab in his blood, while the long, light body with the elongated limbs were essentially adapted for the maximum development of speed. As the spirited creature curveted and pranced before us, our admiration could scarcely be kept in bounds. Miss Carr, in particular, was almost feverishly excited. She went up to the horse and patted him on his forehead. I heard her murmur something low into his ear. The creature turned his large and beautiful eye upon her, as if he understood. He further responded to the girl's caress by pushing his nose forward for her to stroke. "'I have no doubt whatever of the result,' said Sir John Winton, as he walked round and round the animal, examining his points and emphasizing his perfections. "'If Ajax does not win the derby, I shall never believe in a horse again.' He then spoke in a low tone to the trainer, who nodded. The horse was led back to his stables, and we returned to the house. As we crossed the downs I found myself by Miss Carr's side. "'Yes,' she exclaimed, looking up at me, her eyes sparkling. "'Ajax is safe to win. Has Mr. Dufrayer confided in you, Mr. Head?' "'He has,' I answered. "'Do you understand my great anxiety?' "'I do, but I think you may rest assured. If I am any judge of a horse, the favourite is sure to win the race.' "'I wish Frank could hear you.' she cried. He is terribly nervous. He has had such a queer succession of misfortunes. Of course I would marry him gladly, and will, without any fortune, if the worst comes to worse. But there will be no worst, she continued brightly, for Ajax will save us both. Here she paused and pulled out her watch. I did not know it was so late, she exclaimed. I have an appointment with Madame Colucci this morning. I must ask Sir John to send me to the station at once." She hurried forward to speak to the old gentleman, and Dufrayer and I fell behind. Soon afterwards we all returned to London, and on the following Monday I received a telegram from Dufrayer. "'Come to dinner, seven o'clock, important,' was his brief message. I responded in the affirmative, and at the right hour drove off to Dufrayer's flat in Shaftesbury Avenue, arriving punctual to the moment. "'I have asked Calthorpe to meet you,' exclaimed Dufrayer, coming forward when I appeared. His ill-luck dogs him closely. If the horse loses, he is absolutely ruined. His concealed enemy becomes more active as the crucial hour approaches. Ah, here he comes to speak for himself. The door was thrown open, and Calthorpe was announced. Dufrayer introduced him to me, and the next moment we went into the dining-room. I watched him with interest. He was a fair man, somewhat slight in build, with a long, thin face and a heavy moustache. He wore a worried and anxious look, painful to witness. His age must have been about twenty-eight years. During dinner he looked across at me several times, with an expression of the most intense curiosity, and as soon as the meal had come to an end, turned the conversation to the topic that was uppermost in all our minds. "'Dufrayer has told me about you, Mr. Head. 
You are in his confidence, and therefore in mine. Be assured of my keen interest, I answered. I know how much you have staked on the favourite. I saw the colt on Saturday. He is a magnificent creature, and I should say is safe to win. That is... I paused and looked full into the young man's face. Would it not be possible for you to hedge on the most advantageous terms? I suggested. I see the price to-night is five to four. Yes, and I could win thirty thousand either way if I could negotiate the transaction, but that would not affect my purpose. You have heard, I know, from Defrayer, all about my engagement and the strange conditions of old Carr's will. There is no doubt that I possess a concealed enemy whose object is to ruin me. But if Ajax wins, I could obtain sufficient credit to right myself, and also to fulfill the conditions of Carr's will. Yes, I will stand to it now, every penny. The horse can win, and by God, he shall! As he spoke, Calthorpe brought down his fist with a blow on the table that set the glasses dancing. A glance was sufficient to show that his nerves were strung up to the highest pitch, and that a little more excitement would make him scarcely answerable for his actions. "'I have already given you my advice on this matter,' said Defrayer in a grave tone. He turned and faced the young man as he spoke. "'I would say, emphatically, choose the thirty thousand now and get out of it. You have plunged far too heavily in this matter. As to your present run of ill-luck, it will turn, depend upon it, and it is only a question of time. If you hedge now, you will have to put off your marriage, that is all. In the long run you will be able to fulfil the strange conditions which Carr has enjoined on his daughter's future husband.' and if I know Alison aright, she will be willing to wait for you. If, on the other hand, you lose, all is lost. It is the ancient adage, a bird in the hand. It would be a dead crow, he interrupted excitedly, and I want a golden eagle. Two hectic spots burned his pale cheeks, and the glitter in his eyes showed how keen was the excitement which consumed him. I saw my uncle this morning, he went on. Of course, Sir John knows my position well, and there is no expense spared to guard and watch the horse. He is never left day or night by old and trusted grooms in the training stables. Whoever my enemy may be, I defy him to tamper with the horse. By the way, you must come down to see the race, Dufrayer. I insist upon it. And you too, Mr. Head. Yes, I should like you both to be there in the hour of my great success. I saw Rushton, the trainer, today, and he says the race is all over, bar shouting. This was Monday night, and the following Wednesday was Derby Day. On the next evening, impelled by an uncontrollable desire to see Calthorpe, I called a hansom and gave the driver the name of his club. I felt certain that I should find him there. When I arrived, the porter told me that he was in the house, and sending up my card, I went across to the tape machine, which was ticking away under its glass case in the hall. Two or three men were standing beside it, chatting. The Derby prices had just come through, and a page-boy was tearing the tape into lengths and pinning them on a green baize board in the hall. I glanced hurriedly through them. Evans Ajax, four to one Bright Star, eleven to two Midge, eight to one Day Dawn. I felt a hand on my shoulder, and Calthorpe stood beside me. I was startled at his appearance. There was a haggard, wild look in his eyes. "'It seems to be all right,' I said cheerfully. I see Ajax has gone off a point since this morning, but I suppose that means nothing. Oh, nothing, he replied. There has been a pot of money going on Bright Star all day, but the favorite can hold the field from start to finish. I saw him this morning, and he is as fit as possible. Rushton, the trainer, says he absolutely can't lose. A small, dark man in evening dress approached us and overheard Calthorpe's last remark. 
"'I'll have a level monkey about that if you like, Mr. Calthorpe,' he said in a low, nasal voice. "'It's a wager,' retorted Calthorpe, drawing out his pocket-book with silver-bound edges and entering the bet. "'I'll make it a thousand, if you like,' he added, looking up. "'With pleasure,' cried the little man. "'Does your friend fancy anything?' "'No, thank you,' I replied. The man turned away and went back to his companions. "'Who is that fellow?' I asked of Calthorpe. "'Oh, a very decent little chap. He's on the stock exchange and makes a pretty big book on his own account.' "'So I should think,' I replied. "'Why do you suppose he wants to lay against Ajax?' "'Hedging, I should imagine,' answered Calthorpe carelessly. "'One thousand, one way or another, cannot make any difference now.' He had scarcely said the words before Dufrayer entered the hall. "'I've been looking for you, Head,' he said, just nodding to Calthorpe as he spoke, and coming up to my side. "'I went to your house and heard you were here, and hoped I should run you to earth. I want to speak to you. Can you come with me?' "'Anything wrong?' asked Calthorpe uneasily. "'I hope not,' replied Dufrayer. "'But I want to have a word with Head. I will see you presently, Calthorpe.' He linked his hand through my arm, and we left the club. "'What is it?' I asked, the moment we got into the street. "'I want you to come to my flat. Miss Carr is there, and she wishes to see you.' "'Miss Carr is at your flat, and she wishes to see me?' "'She does. You will soon know all about it, Head. Here, let us get into this hansom.' He hailed one which was passing. We got into it and drove quickly to Shaftesbury Avenue. Dufrayer let himself into his rooms with a latch-key, and the next moment I found myself in Allison's presence. She started up when she saw the lawyer and myself. "'Now, Miss Carr,' said Dufrayer, shutting the door hastily, "'we have not a moment to lose. Will you kindly repeat the story to Head, which you have just told me?' "'But is there anything to be really frightened about?' she asked. "'I do not know of any one who can judge of that better than Mr. Head. Tell him everything, please, and at once.' Thus adjured, the girl began to speak. "'I went as usual to Madame Clucci this afternoon.' she began. Her treatment does me a great deal of good. She was even kinder than usual. I believe her to be possessed of a sort of second sight. When she assured me that Ajax would win the derby, I felt so happy that I laughed in my glee. She knows no one better how much this means to me. I was just about to leave her when the door of the consulting-room was opened, and who should appear standing on the threshold but my uncle, the Reverend Felix Carr, there is no love lost between my uncle and myself, and I could not help uttering a cry, half of fear and half of astonishment. I could see that he was equally startled to see me. "'What in the name of fortune has brought you to Madame Colucci?' he cried. Madame rose in her usual stately way and went forward to meet him. "'Your niece, Allison, is quite an old patient of mine,' she said. "'But did you not receive my telegram?' "'No, I left home before it arrived,' he answered. The pains grew worse, and I felt I must see you. I have taken a terrible cold on the journey. As he spoke, he took his handkerchief out of his pocket and sneezed several times. He continued to stand on the threshold of the room. "'Well, good-bye, Allison. Keep up your courage,' cried Madame Colucci. She kissed me on my forehead, and I left. Uncle Felix did not take any further notice of me. The moment I went out, the door of the consulting-room was closed, and the first thing I saw in the corridor was a torn piece of letter. It lay on the floor, and must have dropped out of Uncle Felix's pocket. I recognized the handwriting to be that of Madame Colucci. I picked it up, and these words met my eyes. Innocuous to man, but fatal to the horse. I could not read any further, as the letter was torn across, 
and the other half not in my possession, but the words frightened me, although I did not understand them. I became possessed with a dreadful sense of depression. I hurried out of the house. I was so much at home with Madame Colucci now that I could go in and out as much as I pleased. I drove straight to see you, Mr. Defrayer. I hoped you would set my terrors at rest, for surely Ajax cannot be the horse alluded to. The words haunt me. But there is nothing in them, is there? Please tell me so, Mr. Head. Please allay my fears. May I see the torn piece of paper? I asked gravely. The girl took it out of her pocket and handed it to me. You don't mind if I keep this? I said. No, certainly. But is there any cause for alarm? I hope none. But you did well to consult Dufrayer. Now, I have something to ask you. What is that? Do not repeat what you were good enough to tell Dufrayer and me to Calthorpe. Why so? Because it would give him needless anxiety. I am going to take the matter up, and I trust all will be well. Keep your own counsel. Do not tell what you have just told us to another living soul. And now I must ask you to leave us. Her face grew whiter than ever. Her anxious eyes travelled from my face to Dufrayer's. I will see you to a hansom, I said. I took her downstairs, put her into one, and returned to the lawyer's presence. I am glad you sent for me, Dufrayer, I answered. Don't you see how grave all this is? If Ajax wins the derby, the Reverend Felix Carr, I know nothing about his character, remember, will lose the interest on one hundred thousand pounds, and the further chance of the capital being secured to his son. You see that it would be very much to the interest of the Reverend Felix if Ajax loses the derby. Then why does he consult Madame Colucci? The question of health is surely a mere blind. I confess, I do not like the aspect of affairs at all. That woman has science at her finger's ends. I shall go down immediately to Epson and insist on Sir John Winton allowing me to spend the night in the training stables. I believe you are doing the right thing, answered Dufrayer. You, who know Madame Colucci well, are armed at a thousand points. I shall start at once, I said. I bade Dufrayer good-bye, hailed a hansom, desired the man to drive me to Victoria Station, and took the next train to Epsom. End of Part 1 of Chapter 2